Uh, we're just going to have a Bible reading. They're just up there. Um, yeah. Starting at Job 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day... The angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now you stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabines attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now flick to 1 Peter. From verse 3. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Thanks, Natalia, for reading with such good ex- expression. Poor Job. Now, in our vacancy, uh, Jordan and I will be probably preaching up here quite a bit. <clears throat> and um, I've chosen to preach through the book of James. There, yeah, James, where are you? We've got uh, a book. We're looking at that one for you. Two of you, two James here. Any more? And uh, it so happens that it starts off in the way that it speaks about a lot of bad joy. And if your memories are good, last Sunday, Jeff and she, he used that word joy quite a lot in his preaching. And then on Monday at the funeral of Wimberg Ralph, uh, the, the focus there was on the joy. Well, it's gonna, you're going to get another dose of it this morning but from a different angle, and uh, I made this decision many weeks ago. But so I guess that in God's providence, there must be at least one person here, at least, who needs to hear this concept of joy in suffering. Maybe there's more of you. Who knows? So we're looking at James chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And um, the key verse, the key substance of teaching here is this. Listen very carefully if you haven't heard these words before. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Very challenging words there. Well, congregation, did you know that it is possible to tell the truth in the wrong way or at the wrong time with the unintentional result being dismay in the opposite person you're talking to and increased pain? Imagine the man called Tom who has meticulously planned a mountain climbing expedition for a whole year. That's what you have to do, apparently. And the week before he is to leave... He breaks a leg. Imagine his frustration. You may have experienced something like that yourselves. But then, after the news breaks in his church, his Christian brother arrives at his doorstep and booms out that, I've got a Bible verse that's going to cheer you up, Tom. Just one right for this situation. Consider it pure joy, Tom, 
Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, that you may be mature and complete, says he. Be happy, my friend, that this has happened to you. God intends to strengthen your character through your broken leg. Let's have a party. Tom may well have wanted to use his crutch to knock some sense into the man while quoting Job's speech about his miserable comforters. The thing is that our text is true, but it is not to be used as the first word, for example, in grief counseling. Please don't do that. Nor does it mean that we shout hallelujah when the doctor tells us we have terminal cancer. Well, what then is its meaning? What then is its use for us this morning? The letter begins with an address and greeting. A typical letter, even today. It was personal, as James uses the personal pronouns, we, you, my dear brothers, throughout the letter. Clearly suggesting that he knew the readers quite well, and they he. His letter is what we call a general epistle, one meant to be read in all the churches, the live streaming of the first century. Being of a very general nature, we understand James to be addressing subjects common to all Christians, that's all of us too, and churches, and not to specific problems like Paul does in some of his epistles, e.g. Corinth. Now, by the 50s AD, the churches that had been established were into their second generation. Are you aware that Williton is into its second generation too? With changing times and social circumstances, they needed to be reminded of the important principles and teachings of the Christian faith. It is possible, congregation, for the new generation to forget the faith of their fathers. And that's why I guess we pray much for our young people as we did today. Thanks, Meg. James perceives the Christian's life as one where the Christian is called to live with endurance perseverance, and reach maturity in all the circumstances of your life. Honoring God and testifying of Christ with authenticity, without hypocrisy. That is, it's not a, sur a surface or superficial joy, to use James's word. It's deep and real. And isn't this our situation too, congregation, may I suggest? Sadly, in recent decades, the Christian church is socially on the nose in Australia and elsewhere because of its members' lives. Many of them were in full-time ministry. Think of Cardinal Pell. Think of the CEO of Prison Fellowship some years ago. They've been found to be hypocrites in their public lives. Other members 
shame the church, the gospel, with public sins such as sexual abuse, criminal offenses, and even adultery. And Christians themselves, that's us, we often don't seem to be able to live with the reality of an almighty God who is sovereign in all things, reigning over all the circumstances of our lives. And especially in our increasingly technological age where humans are now resources instead of creatures just a little lower than the angels where science is the modern God that boasts that it will solve all our problems, we are tempted to forget to place God first and foremost in our lives and live as, we live as if I am the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul. We tend to put God aside. So James writes his epistle for his time and, astonishingly, ours to encourage Christians in the most basic of needs how to live our lives in the world of 2023 with all its hassles to the glory of God. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face or encounter, or experience trials of many kinds. It's a paradox, isn't it? Joy in trials, impossible, says the human heart. But it does grab our attention, doesn't it? And he pursues it to the end. Most important of all congregation, James's letter is to be listened to not as the word of man, but as the inspired word of God to us, God revealing his will to us, teaching us how to live in this world. The letter begins with the author's name, James, and some boys are baptized with that name still today. You're following great footsteps. Scholars consider this James to refer to James, the stepbrother of Jesus. Jesus' stepbrother. Yes, firstly referred to in Matthew 13, where we read the people of Nazareth saying, derogatively, Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? James, number two. This James became the leader of the mother church in Jerusalem. And his giftedness finds him chairing the first church council meeting in Acts 15. Paul tells us that he had the reputation of being a pillar in the church. So James could have introduced himself as James, the brother of Jesus Christ, or James, the leader of the mother church. But rather, he introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, an expression of personal humility, a behavior all of us 
need more of? James was now a genuine follower of his Christ brother, the one who came from heaven as the servant of Yahweh, and though a king spent his life serving sinners, climaxing and offering himself as the Lamb of God, atoning for all our sins. So James was no pope or archbishop ruling over the congregations of the Lord. And now at last, let's get to our text, this exciting paradox. His first word is consider. Consider. It is a directive or a command. It is something that his readers have to ponder. The epistle is full of such directives. Ask, he says, know this, don't forget, listen, take note. Bit of a bossy type. Now, the word consider means think things through. Weigh up the proposition. Perceive with care. Just don't take it for granted. James does not want a membership that blindly follows the minister's words. He expects them to seriously consider their faith through the Bible, to know God personally, and put their faith into action day by day. So from the very beginning, he wants his readers to develop a mindset, a mindset, a faith knowledge of the world that enables them to perceive that the ups and downs of life can be gotten through successfully, that is, from a biblical perspective, that is, from God's perspective. And when he adds the subject matter of our consideration as the trials of many kinds, we see it even more clearly. James wants us to see the world, life, as a place of constant testing of many trials, varied situations in your life and mine where faith is tested and triumphs. It is not a bed of roses. So rather than blaming ourselves or other people or the circumstances or sinking in self-pity when the trials get hard, or dare I say, blame it on Lady Luck or chance or good fortune or worst of all, blame God, Christians are to recognize that this world and this life is one where peace is not the norm. Peace is not the norm for this world. But enduring trials with joy is. Enduring trials with joy is the norm. That's challenging, isn't it? Needs faith? Peter says it this way. You may have to suffer griefs in all kinds of trials for a little while, but these have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. 
and result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. Now the second word is it. Consider it. Well, what is it? James has not defined it in the previous words. Rather, he defines it later in the sentence. So we need to straighten out that sentence to see what this it is. You probably know it already. Consider whenever you encounter trials of many kinds to be pure joy. Where here joy is placed last and thus loses its shock effect. But James is a master preacher and he wants to shock his readers. Grabs their attention, holds their attention. So joy gets the prime place. Consider it pure joy. Pure joy. All joy. It is one of his preaching techniques. Joy and trials, they're opposites. They're antonyms. The concepts oppose each other. James says they are synonyms in harmony with one another. Now, I ask you, you can consider something. Consider what would be the most logical, rational, spiritual way of providing comfort to Christians who were, in James's day, fleeing from sudden and horrible deaths, some leaving their homes and most possessions behind them, becoming first century refugees and no United Nations to help you. And when found, when being dragged before courts with little justice and certainly no compassion, or slandering for believing in the noble name of Jesus as Messiah, the Son of God. Well, to such people, James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers. That's the normal Christian life I'm asking you to follow. We have to say, what a paradoxical way of expressing comfort. Surely he must be joking. Surely James is out of touch with the real world. Some might say that he's one of those pastors who knows how to make sermons but is quite unaware of the hardships and anxieties that his congregation endures on a daily basis. There he is in his ivory tower in Jerusalem, living safely and securely while his brothers experience the life of refugees. But not so. James is one who is very aware of the trials of his fellow Christians, and he wants them to view this world in a certain way. God's way. And God's way sees the goal of life not as achieving maximum pleasure, not achieving status in this world, not big bank balances or self-actualization as the fad is today, but as maturity in the faith, maturity in Christ that is expressed with calm endurance to the end of one's life. In short, 
to have what we call a Christian world and life view. A Christian world and life view. A mind that is being transformed into the mind of Christ. Paul says to the church in Corinth, what a terrible church that was, we have the mind of Christ. The way we endure life's trials reveals our heart condition. It reveals how big we think God is, how truly we understand the greatness of God. Is he almighty or is he not? There's the challenge to your faith that has to grow and mature. Remember, James had just witnessed the death by stoning of Stephen, the first deacon, at the hands of the elders and teachers of the law. He had just witnessed the first persecution that followed, where Christians had to flee Jerusalem, north, south, and east. Couldn't go too far west, you ended up in the ocean. And he remained in Jerusalem, where the persecution continued. Yes, he had experienced trials. He knew all about it. So now, as a faithful pastor and shepherd of Christ's flock, he encouragingly exhorts them to rejoice in their situation and show the strength that that faith in Jesus Christ produces. And that faith is a faith that is focused in the greatness and sovereignty of God through Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ as the one who is the Son of God, seated at his Father's right hand, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. He's the boss, he's the God. He's our God. Now here's another important point to remember. The joy we have in trials does not come from the trial itself. It does not come from having cancer or divorces or abuse or disasters. Those things suck, to use a colorful word. Rather, the joy is experienced in the way we endure the pain and anxiety of the hardship. That's where the joy is, in the enduring. The trials suck, and you'll see why in a minute. Consider Job. He endured the loss of his worldly wealth and the death of all his children in one day. Ponder, consider his feelings and his heart and mind that day. And he responded with grief, but also followed very quickly with humble worship and giving glory to God. The Lord gave all my wealth, all my children, and the Lord has taken them away. He has that right. He has that authority. May the name of the Lord be blessed. And we'll close our or respond to the preaching of God's word with that, blessed be the name of the Lord, which includes Job's words. Remember, Jesus suffered greatly in the, Geth in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, but he endured it 
without complaints, knowing that it was his Father's will. And that was joy to him. It's a remarkable verse in Hebrews, which Tony quoted, and I think Jeff quoted it too. So this is an important verse to remember, congregation. In Hebrews it says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. Amazing verse. When you read the Bible, you do find some amazing verses there, you know. After Gethsemane and his full acceptance of his Father's will to die for our sins, he calmly, peacefully endured the cross, the symbol of his Father's wrath, knowing that there was joy in fulfilling his Father's will. And joy... He seems in the fruit of his suffering for his people's redemption. There was joy in his soul as he endured the greatest of all trials. And are we not his followers? And lastly, we need to examine that word joy a little bit more. Biblical joy is not the effervescent happiness of the world that expresses itself in revelry and partying and carousing, but rather the joy of a spiritual nature. It is grounded in God himself and is a fruit of his Holy Spirit, love, joy, second of the fruit of the Spirit. It is a dynamic reality, And it flows from Christ and his atoning work on the cross for us. So having delivered his punchline, his paradox of joy and trials, James can now proceed to give God's purpose in bringing trials and hardships, pain and suffering into the lives of his children. Yes, there is purpose in trials. He gets to the point immediately, as James always does, the goal of trials is to develop perseverance of faith, maturity of faith, and completeness of faith in the lives of these scattered, suffering Christians of the first century and the suffering Christians of today. We Reformed Christians might have expected a detailed theological rationale for his challenging paradox. But no, James doesn't go into all those matters. The opening words tell us why. He says, because you know. Because you know. Implies that his readers are fully aware of the basis and the greatness and the sovereignty of God. The three words can be viewed as synonyms, viewing the one purpose from different angles. So, congregation, all the hardships of life that we encounter are tests of our faith in Jesus. Tests that not only reveal the genuineness of our faith, but have the blessing 
of strengthening and maturing it, enabling you and me to persevere through the trial into triumph and joy. And there would be many in this congregation who can readily testify that this has been the spiritual fruit and joy of their afflictions. We know you. We've seen you. The principle occurs in all of creation. The reality of a talent cannot be known, and it is revealed by testing. Everybody tests something to reveal its genuineness and perseverance. And so the faith of a Christian needs to be exercised, tested with trials, so that it will grow and come to maturity, when it can display the purpose for which it was given, honor and praise to God himself. Now, congregation, there is no joy to hear your loved one has been killed in an accident, 